Let me invite you to turn to the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I plan to return to our series on 1 Corinthians next Sunday. But uh, today, being Labor Day weekend, I want us to uh, look at what it means to serve God in our work. While you're turning there, for our members who were here last week, on the Sundays we have the Lord's Supper, which is uh, this coming school year, will be once a month. Uh, then we take uh, the deacons take an offering up at the end of that service. And they wisely decided that that offering would go to help with flood relief in Louisiana. If you've been keeping up with this, um, the long-term impact, they believe, of this flooding is going to exceed that of Hurricane Katrina. It's going to be worse, long-term. And uh, we have a, uh, our denomination has a disaster relief agency. So we have some people with expertise in not just short-term, but long-term relief efforts. And that's, that's where it gets difficult is the long-term. They have set up a uh, kind of a, uh, a headquarters in Baton Rouge. And so that is where our offering, uh, uh, which I want to tell you was, was very generous. Uh, it, over $16,000 was given just in that exit offering. That, that's a large amount for this church to give. Uh, so I want to compliment you for your generosity. And I know you didn't do that for any kind of recognition. Uh, but I want you to know that you're were, you were very generous. There are going to be more opportunities and needs for us to give. We'll be sending teams down over the next year because this is going to last a long time. And if you're interested in being part of a short-term team with some of the work efforts that will go on, just call the church office. We don't have those set up yet. Everything's still in a matter of flux uh, with our relief agency but that time will come sooner rather than later. So if you would like to be a part of that, call our church office and just let them add your name to the list and say, notify me, please, when a short-term team is going and you can find a date that might work for you. Uh, serving God in our work. I want to read a portion of Genesis chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 2. Begin in verse 24 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, just a few verses from chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we pray, uh, as we always do with the psalmist, that you'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Whether it's uh, working for some kind of pay or mowing the grass or cleaning house or studying for a class or making up a bed or washing clothes or caring for children or practicing medicine or being a carpenter or being a student or being a youth pastor, we all work. Uh, We see that God's work in creation, in the passage I read to you, and if you read the fuller part of all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see that God worked. What I read to you was from chapter 1 was from the sixth day of creation. And so from the very beginning, we see God working in the work of creation. And then on the seventh day, the Bible tells us he rested from all the work of creating he had done, and God pronounced his work good. To work is part of God's nature. And God created you and me and all people in his own image. And part of being created in his image is that we are workers like God himself. Not only did we see that God worked, but Adam, the first man, worked. Uh, I read to you from chapter 2 how God took the man and he, he put him in this garden to work it and keep it. And then he brought the animals to him and he was to give names to all the animals and whatever he called the living creature, that was his name. And so Adam tended the garden and he named the animals. And this was a call to work, to perform manual labor uh, in the garden. And then what we would call intellectual labor, which was to name the animals. And uh, between intellectual labor and, and physical labor, one was not seen as more important than the other. Now the purpose of the work, We read in in chapter 1, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. To subdue the earth literally, literally means to exercise dominion or to dominate it, to rule over it. The energy that we expend then in any kind of work is to be toward this purpose of expanding God's kingdom, of being his, they, the theological term is the, his vice regents over the world that he has created. We are his representatives. Work was good. This was part of God's plan. But something happened, and that is the fall, the fall into sin. We read about that in chapter 3 of Genesis. And as a result of Adam and Eve breaking God's law and God had warned them in the day you eat of it, if you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. Well, they died spiritually at that very moment. And God pronounced a curse. And it said, he said to Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So even though there was work before sin entered the world, as a result of sin entering the world, now the work would be inefficient, it would be frustrating, it would be unproductive. 
Whereas before, perhaps there was even 100% efficiency, if you can imagine. And it was fulfilling. But not so after sin entered the world. Yet work was still part of God's plan. We read from the Ten Commandments uh, earlier. And there with the commandment about the Sabbath, it says six days you shall labor and do all your work. Uh, So to the ancient Jew, work was life. They had a saying, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. And so although Jewish teachers, the rabbis, the formal teachers, had education equivalent to our college professors today, they did not accept money for their teaching. Instead, each learned a trade at which they would work with their hands, and they supported themselves. Some were bakers, some were tailors, some were shoemakers, some were barbers, uh, among other things. And this was a radical notion. It was so contrary to the surrounding world and the prevailing wisdom of the pagan civilizations of the day. The Greek civilization viewed work as a curse. They said the gods hated mankind, Homer argued, and out of spite condemned man to toil. In fact, the Greek word for work is the same word for punishment. To have to work is to be punished. And so craftsmen were regarded as little more than slaves, while slavery itself was an institution based on a hatred of work. Plato and Aristotle promoted this two-story concept of work. They said that the majority of humanity should do the heavy lifting. That would be most of the people, so that the minority, including themselves, could give themselves to worthy occupations, like philosophy and art and politics. But Christianity changed all of that. And with those general thoughts in mind for a few moments, is God concerned about your work? Many Christians today, and perhaps you struggle with this, I know that I do, and I talk to many people that do, we experience a disconnect between our faith and our work. As though what does our work have to do with our faith? And I believe this often is related to a misunderstanding of some key terms. And those key terms begin with the word meaning. Meaning. Your life has meaning. Why? Because of what you do? No. Because of who you know? No, that's not it. It's because God created you in his image. And by that sheer fact alone, your life has meaning. You're not an animal or an accidental result of some evolutionary mindless process that gives you no worth. Instead, you have inherent worth and inherent value or meaning because you're made in God's image. That's true of every person here. The second term, I think, is misunderstood, and that's purpose. Your purpose, your purpose is to serve God and to glorify him in all that you do. Hopefully, as we study 1 Corinthians, when we get to chapter 10, we'll look more closely when Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So you can only know your true purpose in life as you know Christ as your Savior and as you submit your life to him. So my purpose is to glorify him. But as I glorify him, that's not what gives my life meaning. My life has meaning because I'm made in God's image. And I'm important to him regardless of what kind of work I do. The third term, I think, that's very misunderstood but is a great term is the word calling. 
calling is the specific work where the Lord calls you to serve in order best to fulfill your purpose, which is to glorify Him. How can I glorify God in the most effective way? That leads me toward calling. Another word closely akin to calling is the Latin word from which we get vocation, which means to call. And so in the Old Testament, we have some examples of God calling individuals to very special tasks, extraordinary tasks, like Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, where God calls them to do something very, very special. He also called the nation of Israel to enter into covenant with himself. Jesus called people to be his disciples, to follow him and become fishers of men. The New Testament says our call to follow Christ involves that we are to be like Christ. We are to grow into conformity to him. And so we are also encouraged to see our daily occupations as God's vocation for us in the world. So when you, especially young people here, when you think about career or how I will invest myself and my giftedness and my personality and so forth to glorify God, the question I should ask, the primary question, not the only question, is where does God want me to be? What does God want me to do? An ancient prayer of the church was a prayer for all your faithful people that each in his or her vocation and ministry may serve you in holiness and truth to the glory of your name. And so John Calvin believed every person has certain duties in his or her life which have been appointed by God. And these various kinds of living are called callings. And this means that, quote, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of century post so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. So God posts us as centuries uh, to watch and to serve him in certain places. Some of you have read this book by Oz Guinness. Uh, Oz Guinness is a gift to the church. Uh, he wrote this some years ago. It's called The Call, subtitled Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. And he's, his, here is his definition of calling. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. So God calls me to himself, or God calls you to himself, and now I am to live investing everything that I have, investing myself with special devotion and dynamism in his service for his glory. Well, here are some dangers from misunderstanding calling. One is when we look to our calling to give us purpose and meaning. We can easily begin to base our value on our contribution to the kingdom, whether that's in the home or in the workplace or wherever it might be. And if your worth, is, if your worth and your meaning are tied up in your work, and that's part of the calling, as a craftsman or a mother or a lawyer or preacher or teacher or professional or whatever it may be, if, it's tied, if your meaning and purpose are tied up in those, then you are headed for disappointment rather than the one who sees their work as part of their calling 
in order to fulfill God's purpose for them. So that I can say, I, I, I do this because God has led me that this is the most effective way I can serve him and further his kingdom through what I'm doing. So that's the first misunderstanding is to, to equate vocation with purpose and meaning. The second that's even more dangerous today is, is when we only view certain things as spiritual vocations and that only those matter to God. That God calls people to be pastors or God calls people to be missionaries, but anything else is some, some kind of inferior direction. And it, it builds this thick wall between what could be called spiritual and secular. So if you're in the church ministry, that's spiritual. But if you're a physician, that's secular. And therefore, it's, it's a, not as great a worth as this, or not a true a calling as that. And the Bible makes no such distinctions. You won't find any of that in Scripture. It stresses the idea of calling that whatever you do, you should do it with all your heart to his glory. And so all lawful professions were honorable. We see laboring in 1 Corinthians 5. In Exodus 36, we read a lot about manual skills. And also in Exodus 36, we read about business and managerial skills. And then with Daniel and Moses, we see that they had mental and scientific ability, engineering ability. So if you have this separation, this distinction between spiritual and secular, it will make you, one, fail to see the importance of your work in God's eyes. Whether you're a bookkeeper or a full-time mother or full-time father or you're caring for children or whether you're a nurse or whether you are a clerk in a store or whatever it is that God calls you to do, if you have this separation, well, only calling is for spiritual things and I'm in a secular vocation, then you'll think this isn't important in God's eyes and you're wrong. Secondly, what that will do if you have this distinction, you will fail to see the importance of your work in your eyes with what you're doing. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that without an overstatement it was somewhat life-altering and you weren't expecting it? Um, I've had a few of those, but one I remember most happened when I was in high school. I was at a YMCA, and there was a pastor in our hometown named Tom Ellis. I was a friend of his, though he pastored another church where I didn't attend. And I would see Tom, and Tom had a way of invading your life and asking personal questions about your spiritual life. And I, he, would, he wasn't afraid to say, Chip, how's your relationship with the Lord? And so he was the kind of guy I avoided most of the time when I was not doing very well spiritually. But on this particular day, we were standing in a gymnasium at the YMCA, and I was dribbling a basketball, and he and I were talking. And I was complaining about schoolwork as a high school senior, and I didn't see the value in it. Why study Western civilization when I could be studying the Book of Romans? That's what I was communicating to him. And, you know, that this did not have value, the, t the subjects we were studying, when I wanted to study stuff that I thought was more pertinent to my life and my relationship with God. And I don't remember all the words he said, but contained in one of those sentences, well, right now God has called you to be a student. I don't remember anything else. God has called you to be a student. I had never heard anything like that. 
but it literally changed my entire perspective towards school. I didn't immediately become a better student, but I saw it in a completely different light. I had never heard anyone use the word calling outside of religious-type things. And now this pastor whom I respected is saying, God has called you at this stage of your life to be a student. Therefore, you should study Western civilization to the glory of God. You can study trigonometry to the glory of God, and so forth. So this gives dignity and work to our dignity and meaning to our work. So as I was saying, can you perform surgery to the glory of God? Of course. Can you deliver mail to the glory of God? Yes. Can you clean up your room? Can you work on a car to the glory of God? Yes. So a proper understanding of this can transform even the most routine chores into something that has meaning. I hear our the Bible's loaded with guidelines for our work, especially the New Testament. I don't have time to give you as many as I had listed. But there's a basic principle in 1 Corinthians, and, and I read it earlier, chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Well, how do we do that? What does that mean? Well, first of all, you do whatever you're doing lawfully. You, you cannot steal to the glory of God. You cannot lie to other people and bear false witness to the glory of God. So you do your work lawfully. You do your work wholeheartedly. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men. Literally, it just means from the heart. Do it gladly. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Marianne Jennings is professor of legal and ethical studies at Arizona State University, and she wrote an article some time ago expressing concern about the work ethics of students that she was seeing today. And I'll read what she wrote. The average time for completion of a bachelor's degree is 5.5 years, so most students are not on a fast track. And they've developed some bad habits by the time they get into college. One is whining. As long as there have been students, there has been whining about workload, about subjects, about grades, but now there is preemptive whining. Even before the semester begins, even before papers and tests are handed back, students come into my office at Arizona State with a laundry list of complaints. Last year, one-third of my students protested their, their grades. In my first 20 years of teaching, not a single student questioned my judgment but I expect half my students to do so in the next 10. They are infected with an entitlement mentality. Good grades are not earned by hard work and subject mastery, but by signing up to take the class. I once counseled a graduate student who was doing poorly by saying, look, the problem is that you have a lack of depth when it comes to your studies. You have no knowledge base on which you can draw. You are going to have to start reading. And he said with some surprise, what do you mean? books? We must do our work heartily for the Lord. Do your work with diligence. That means to be steady, to take great effort. Proverbs 10 is loaded with verses about diligence and laziness and slackness. And it says the slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Diligence it means giving the extra effort, measuring twice and cutting once, rechecking our work, paying attention to detail, working hard, doing the research, investigation, finding ways to be more effective in the work that we are doing. And we are to do things for the right reason. 
to please and to glorify God in what you do. We play to an audience, but we play to an audience of one. We're not just laying bricks, we are building a wall for God's glory. We are not just teaching little children or teens, we are training future leaders in the world. We're not just performing surgery in the OR, we're trying to be God's representative in the healing arts. We're not just driving a tractor to grow a crop to feed our family, we're trying to plow a straight furrow to the end of our rows so God is pleased with what we grow and we use what he gives us to his glory. When Wayne Herring preached here years ago, he reminded us, and I looked it up to double-check it, that the top of the head of the Statue of Liberty, placed here in the 1870s, that the top of the head is accurately sculpted because the Christian sculptor knew that God would see it, even though airplanes had not been invented at that time. Oz Guinness, back again in this book, he says, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. Maybe the eye of a supervisor, maybe the eye of your uh, manager, uh, me as a pastor, maybe it's what you think about this sermon. We keep an eye on other things. And he goes on and says, the question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. And as a believer... Our audience should be the one. We play to an audience of one, of God himself. And diligence spills over to other areas. As I try to wrap this up. Proverbs warns about lack of diligence. Proverbs 18.9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. What does that mean? So here's a person who destroys something. And the writer of Proverbs says the person who is slack in their work, who is not diligent, is like the brother of the person. He's right, right next to them. Can you believe that this year, those of us that my age are a little bit younger, this year marks 30 years since the Space Challenger, Space Shuttle Challenger blew up. 85% of Americans did not witness that but within a matter of hours, knew about that through the media. But I remember, I remember I was sitting in a student center at the University of Arkansas, and I looked at the big screen, and I saw that thing uh, blow up. And Barbara's dad, my father-in-law, was a, was a mechanical engineer with the NASA, with the space program, the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville. And he had worked on the early phases of the space shuttle in the areas of refrigeration and cooling. And as he watched that on television, the first words out of his mouth when the shuttle blew up, his first words were, somebody messed up. Isn't that? And, of course, the research showed that exactly what it was. The night before that happened, one of the engineers with Morton Thiokol told his wife, the shuttle will blow up tomorrow. Not, nobody wanted it to happen. It was, a, it was just a tragedy of errors. But if we're not, if we're slack, we're brother to him who destroys. And maybe, yeah, our hand wasn't the one that pulled the trigger, but, but our slackness contributed to it. So we do our work with diligence. I'm out of time. The greatest work is not something you do, but something you receive. And it's the work that God has done through Christ. Because of our sin and because of his love, he sent his son to carry out the work of making forgiveness possible. 
He lived a perfect life. He died as a payment for the wages of sin, which is death. And God carried out that work so that we might know him. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that that you've made us in your image, and we have value and worth regardless of whether the world around us assigns any to us or not. And we see fads come and go, and what is shown to us as being important as far as wealth or power or beauty or influence, and yet we see that we have value because of who we are, that you've made us, and that we have purpose, and that is to glorify you in all that we do. And we have callings in variety of spheres, in family, in, in career, in church, in community. We pray that we would seek to glorify you, not to earn your favor, but because we've been redeemed, because we've been made right with you, may that be reflected in our work. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.